You're listening to The Higher Ed Marketer, a podcast geared towards marketing professionals in higher education. This show will tackle all sorts of questions related to student recruitment, donor relations, marketing trends, new technologies, and so much more. If you're looking for conversations centered around where the industry is going, this podcast is for you. Let's get into the show. Welcome to this week's episode of the Higher Ed Marketer Podcast. I'm Troy Singer, partnering with Bart Kaler, and each week we interview higher ed marketers that we admire for the benefit and hopefully the betterment of the entire higher ed community. Our guest today is Bob Johnson from Johnson Consulting, and we talked to Bob, who has a wealth of knowledge and experience in higher ed marketing, about websites and Comflow and the improvement and making sure that they are working as optimized as possible. Bart? Yeah, Bob's a great guest, and I have known about Bob for many, many years. I've admired his work, and, and uh, he's really kind of a, uh, you know, kind of one of those uh, you know, pillars in the higher ed marketing community. Um, he's been doing the work for many, many years. I was first introduced to his work in the mid-2000s. He's obviously done a lot of research and is very knowledgeable and just does an awesome job of, of sharing his wisdom on today's show. Here's our conversation with Bob Johnson. Bob, we are so excited to have you on our podcast and to get into your experience and what you're working on now. But we love starting our conversations with our guests by asking them if there's something that you've learned recently that you would think is interesting enough for the community to know. Something I just learned this morning was a possible pathway because I don't know about it in detail yet. I was reading the uh, blog newsletter from Terminal uh, for the, a web people in Dublin, Ireland that, have, that work with a lot of higher education institutions all around the world. And uh, they're concerned or they're talking to people in that blog letter about what's going to happen to higher education marketing online when Google Analytics no longer, well, not, not just the change in Google Analytics, but when cookies aren't being used anymore. Now, cookies seem to be on the demise by the end of next year, so it's not like we have to fix things in a hurry. But things like retargeting advertising, which some <laughs> people still think is really creepy, but a lot of higher education institutions use it, and some of them use it well, and some of them not so well. Those things are going to be harder to do. So Terminal 4 was talking about a new approach to analytics and tracking what people do on your website called Funnelback. And uh, before we end today, I'll, I'll give people a way to search and do what I do. I just signed up for the Funnelback newsletter uh, so I can get direct from them. Uh, they're working with universities in the UK and the US. I'd honestly never heard of it before, <laughs> but that's why I read other people's blog things because other people know more than I do. And Terminal 4 was right on it. They mentioned a couple of universities, including University of Edinburgh, which uh, has done a lot of work with top task research and, and really focusing the website on the needs of students who use the site. So as soon as I saw they had been a client of Funnelback, I said, uh, then there must be something good about this. Creighton University has also either is or has been a client as well. Uh, one of the things touted about it is that it will help you discover yeah. terrible, con not terrible, but unused content on your website. And just about every higher education website uh, suffers from an excess of building up content that's never removed. My 
my uh, colleague, friend, and partner in, in Dublin, Ireland, Jerry McGovern, has a phrase I've often used in conferences that websites always eat, they never poop. <laughs> and, uh, for the most part, no higher education website team is charged with the systematic reduction of unused content on the site. There's a couple of them out there that are, but that's pretty rare. And of course, the bigger and more bloated your website, the worse your search function works. And that's what Funnelback is designed for. So that's what I, that's the, that's the new stuff I learned. I'm really interested in that kind of thing because most of my professional interests today are focused on making more effective marketing websites for better student recruitment. And so that's why I, I jumped on this as soon as I saw it in the Terminal 4 blog. Bob, I'm assuming that most people know who you are within the higher ed marketing community, but I don't want to take that for granted. So please, if you could give us as quickly as possible, and with all of your expertise, I know it might take a little while, but give us a <laughs> glimpse of your journey. And uh, I want to set the stage for the reason why there's very few people that we can have as a guest that can speak to higher ed marketing and websites like you. Well, I've been involved, I've been doing higher education marketing since, oh, I'd say the, the mid-1980s. Uh, I was involved with Tom Hayes in creating, you know, helping set up, Tom was the initial founder, and in helping set up the uh, Symposium for the Marketing of Higher Education uh, just before it went over to the AMA. And Tom told me at the time, he called me on the phone in the 80s because I was the only person he could find in higher ed with the title Vice President for Marketing that I had at a college in Detroit at the time. So that led him to me. We've had a partnership of sorts ever since. And I, when it went over to the AMA, when the symposium went over to the AMA, I chaired that for about 10 years from the early 90s to the early 2000 aughts. Uh, during that time, I developed a higher ed marketing newsletter to promote the symposium and to collect subscribers. And I've been writing that ever since, uh, since 1995, and it still gets subscribers. People leave, people arrive. Uh, I don't know what's bringing new ones in these days, but they still come, so it balances off. And uh, that's what I'm primarily doing. I call myself semi-retired now. I'm not actively looking for new clients. I'm not looking for, you know, things to do at conferences. I did that for 15, <laughs> did that for 30 years, <laughs> and I don't miss the airports. So... Uh, I still write that. I do a link of the week every every week in between the newsletter. I pick a, a college or university website link that I think is particularly good in the higher education atmosphere, you know, marketing atmosphere. And I still, as long as I have fun doing that, I'm going to and doing things like what we're doing right here today. Then I'll I'll keep doing that. Uh, I, I held university marketing positions all during the 90s until the year 2000. In the year 2000, I went to work with an agency in Albany, New York. I worked with them for six years. After six years, I went on my own as an independent consultant. I just got, I just wanted to be on my own, and I thought I had enough recognition that that would work for a time, and it did. So from 2006 uh, until just before the pandemic, I was actively involved in that. <laughs> And then I kind of eased into the semi-retirement stage and uh, still involved, not quite as active as before. Started a new project this week, though, and uh, I'll tell you up front, and this new project is doing a competition review, the client, and uh, 
the project person, the, the project school, which I'm not at liberty to name right now, is only the second school that I've ever worked with or been a, uh, a secret shopper at that used the name of the academic program they asked me about when I filled out their inquiry form. They actually referred that on the first email response I got. And not doing that, I think, is one of the major marketing mistakes that almost every college and university in the land makes. They collect that information on their inquiry form, and most of them never refer to it, at least in the first couple of weeks of email inquiries. And this new client, by God, it was a forensic science program. That doesn't narrow it down too much. There's a lot of those in the country. And they mentioned forensic science, that I, that I was interested in that in the email. I've only had one of those 10 years ago from a regional public university in Wisconsin uh, where I said I was interested in pre-med. And I got an email back. I got two emails back in the first four, one from the chair of the biology department and one from the head of the pre-med committee. And that I regard as masterful, detailed, conversion-oriented, follow-up marketing, uh, which is an area where so many schools could do so much better work than they do now. Yeah, isn't that interesting, Bob? I mean, I, I've known of you for a very long time. I think we just recently met, but I've known of you for a very long time. And my, my first higher ed website was in you know 1997. My alma mater had heard that I was doing websites and asked me to be a part of theirs. And I got picked up by the Chronicle and other places. But I was aware of your work early 2000s. And it's funny, just as you tell that story about that secret shopping uh, situation that you're in right now, that technology has been around for a while. Just the idea of variable data and, and personalization. I mean, it's, it's not something that's, you know, was invented in 2019 or 2020. And I agree with you. I mean, most of the, most of the modern CRMs, most of the, you know, a lot of the, the technology and websites can allow for that personalization. But it's, and, and we all hear so many times that personalization is what Gen Z and, and these, these generations want to see. That's what makes them get excited about things. But it just seems like that's a, that's a missing opportunity that a lot of schools, uh, their marketing departments just aren't, aren't grabbing onto. Yeah. And in this case, the two other schools that are the competitors of the client school, uh, neither one of them paid any attention to what I put down as a program of interest when I filled out the form there. They're busy trying to get me to visit campus uh, a couple of days after I filled out the inquiry form, which I would regard as slightly premature, but whatever. Neither one of them mentioned the, uh, the academic program that they asked me about. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. Today's podcast is brought to you by Ardeo Education Solutions. Ardeo helps colleges and universities increase access to education while giving students and families financial peace of mind. Ardeo's loan repayment assistance programs, known as LRAPs, help students with modest incomes repay their federal student, parent plus, and private loans. Ardeo's LRAPs give students the confidence they need to enroll and are a win-win for your institution. To learn more about Ardeo and see case studies from institutions like yours, visit ardeo.org. That's A-R-D-E-O dot org. Welcome back. Let's rejoin the conversation right here on The Higher Ed Marketer. Isn't it funny? You, you mentioned that, you know, trying to get them on campus. And it seems like 
so much in higher ed, everyone is so eager to kind of get you to that next step of commitment. And I've often joked, and I, I don't remember if we talked about this in our pre-interview, but I've often joked that, you know, getting a person to your website that's just discovered who you are and building a relationship and you ask them to either visit now or apply now, it's like asking your spouse to marry you on your first date. It's, it's so premature and there's so much more woo that could go on before that. What do you think about that? I think that's absolutely right. Uh, I used to use the analogy in presentations about, you know, the first date isn't the time to ask somebody to go to Paris with you. Probably. I mean, depending on how you're reading the first date, but usually you have to cultivate these things a little bit. Maybe wait for the second, the third, the fourth time or something like that. But yes, I agree. You can jump into it uh, too quickly. Uh, I see still a lot of higher education websites that it's actually difficult to become an inquiry. It's easy to apply for admission on the, as if people will do that on the very first visit. And most schools just don't have the marketing prowess, if you will. The, the, you, maybe that works for Harvard and Yale and so forth, or University of Michigan here where I am in Michigan. But it doesn't work for most <laughs> schools. You've got to get move people along in the direction of why they should be doing that. Even inquiry form is kind of misleading. Uh, you know, most inquiry forms say to get more information, fill out the form and an awful lot of potential students now want to get the information they want to get when they visit the website. There's a reason to get people to sign up, but you've got to give them more of a reason. You got to tell them what they're going to get. What's the benefit to them from filling out your inquiry form besides helping populate your database? And there are a few schools that do a pretty good job with that. I mean, I have a collection of schools that actually do a good job of telling you what you're going to get when you fill it out and then repeating that when they get the online response form that pops up after you do the inquiry form uh, on, on the website. Uh, but too many of them just don't pay any attention to that. They, they just don't. It's an opportunity for immediate contact after somebody fills out that form and uh, it's not taken advantage of nearly as well as it should be. Obviously, we're talking about an inquiry form and the, the action that we want them to take when they come to the website. But, that, but you've done a lot of research in your career about the, the top tasks that, that students, especially traditional undergrad students, are looking for when they arrive on your website. And we all know that the website is the number one influencer. I mean, that's, that, that's coming out in the data all the time is that it is your number one choice to kind of get the, the relationship started. What are those top tasks in your research that you've found that those prospective students are looking for when they arrive on the homepage? Well, let's put it in the context of the, yeah, the top two or three and not obsess too much about which is number one and which is right. number two, because they're both important. Academic program availability is still extremely high. It's always been high as long as we've been doing that research. People want to know whether or not uh, you've got the program that they're interested in. And if they're already interested in one and if they already know you have it, uh, because, you know, Uncle Charlie or Aunt Mary told them to, you know, look at Western Michigan University because they've got blank and blank. Then they want to get to your website and they want to get the hell off the website as fast as they can or off the home page as fast as they can to get to the particular program that interests them. Uh, so that's that's a num that's still number one or number two. What we actually found out, and this was with a university uh, primarily oriented to adult students, 
we did a top test survey, surprised everyone in the, involved from the university to us that costs came out first. And this was pre-2008. Costs have gone up much higher since 2008, even among, among traditional and adult students. So it was a surprise. I guess we did that research in about 2005 or six or somewhere back there. And in effect, they were saying, well, we want to know what it's going to cost us uh, before we go any further on the site. Uh, so that's, that's probably the number. For many people, that's at least the number two issue right now. Uh, a number three issue, particularly for adults, but also increasingly uh, for younger students, are out, outcomes information. What, what happens if I go to your school, take your major that interests me, and graduate, what happens next? And, and that's an area where uh, almost no schools really have substantive information uh, about outcomes related to a partic the particular majors they offer at the school. That's difficult to compile, I've been told. There are some schools, at least a couple of schools, who do it. And, and that would be an, a, mark, a competitive advantage for schools that had that would be a way to differentiate themselves from the majority of schools that don't. Most schools, what they put up on the website uh, is the percentage of the over 90% of their graduates who are either employed or in graduate school within six months after graduation. Uh, I, don't, I have never seen a college or a university that does not have that information to put up. And that isn't really what people are looking for when it comes to outcomes. Uh, it's not a differentiator, but where they're really lacking most schools still is an easy way for people to get an estimate of what it will cost them personally. Bart, you mentioned personalization. Uh, how can I find out, how can I get an estimate? Doesn't have to be the final word, but how can I get an early estimate in the conversion process and the recruitment process of what it's going to cost me to go to your school without having to fill out the FAFSA, without having to fill out a pre-FAFSA or anything like that, would you please tell me, give me an idea what it's going to cost? And, and my favorite source for that, I think we mentioned last week, is uh, the My Intuition uh, format, which is you know used by several dozen schools, mostly private. Uh, but some public in, in Massachusetts, uh, three or four parts of the public university system are using it now. And a student can go on there and fill out seven steps. Seven steps is all they need. And they get an estimate back from the particular school that's using it of what their aid package is going to look like. And more important, you know, what is the net cost to them? Uh, so I, I would encourage, I didn't just learn about this this week, but I would certainly encourage anyone listening to at least check that out. Yeah, Google I think that's a great intuition, point. Google uh, intuition and go and look and see what it's all about. Uh, was invented by a professor at Wellesley, uh, an economics professor years and years and years ago. It wouldn't still be working there if it didn't work well. They still connect to the, S, the FAFSA which is logical. You know, if they like what they see there, then they'll go do something else. But uh, so those three things, academic programs, cost to me, uh, not sticker price, because we know that's what scares everybody away. So we got to get past the sticker price. My intuition is a, 
easy way to get past the sticker price and then the outcomes. Uh, now, if you're a residential student, and I'll, I'll pass it back to you folks, if you're a residential student, obviously, at some point, you're going to want to learn what it's like to live and experience on the campus. And that's when you're going to want to go visit and do all those kinds of things about the dorms and so forth. Yeah. And a lot of that, what you just said there, a lot of that should also be kind of intuitive in the way that the design, the layout, the photography, the videos are presenting that. Um, you know, students don't want to read it. They want to be able to experience that. But I think those are great points, Bob, those those three elements. And I think it's interesting, um, you know, because I think one of the th one of the challenges that people don't realize is our friends Google have created these knowledge panels for every university uh, in in the in North America, and basically they've they've indicated the fact they're just pulling at least in the United States pulling iPads data and giving you know churning out the graduation rates the um, the average cost of of attendance after to, after um, after discounts. So that data is out there even before the students are getting to your website, and so I I love your point of. Sites like My Intuition, sites like, uh, you know, being able to put the information about tuition and cost up front and clear because we know students are looking at that, parents are looking at that more than ever before. So, Bob, these are really great points, and I think that uh, I think those are, are really, really good things. One thing I did want to kind of tease out a little bit on that, um, Bob, is also just this idea of help me understand a little bit when you look at, I mean, you've, you've looked at this for many years, the idea of navigation. Um, I, I was looking at a site the other day, and, and somebody asked me to review it, and I think I counted up 57 unique links on the homepage. Uh, you know, and it wasn't a long, drawn-out long uh, homepage. It was a pretty short homepage. Help me understand, especially one of the big debates I hear a lot is the idea of audience-centric navigation. So I have to identify, am I undergrad, am I adult, am I degree completion, am I graduate, am I online, versus more of a... Uh, more of a functional type of uh, navigation where, you know, I've got about, I've got academics, I've got admissions, I've got, you know, athletics. Help me understand what your, what your research has shown and, and your, your expertise. Well, the first point I guess I would make is that the top, the top tasks don't differ that much based on type of student visiting the site. So I, I've had, I've had clients who, uh, doing the research, they, insist on breaking down the results from graduate students, for instance, versus undergraduate students. Uh, there are certainly differences among those groups, but when they first come to the website, they're remarkably similar. They want to know if you have the program, they want to know what it's going to cost, and they want to know what's going to, you know, what's the benefit to them if they finish the program. So I, I think, uh, the variation on the audience centric is not to obsess over the 18 year olds are dramatically different than the 30 year olds. They're not with respect to the tasks they want to do when they come to the site. Actually the, you know, the new client right now actually does a remarkably good job. I mean, they, they have the, the pathway. The only thing you see when the website, when the homepage opens is the websites to the academic programs. And then a differentiation for online programs, so you can quickly get into those. And I've seen recent research, by the way, that shows that their high school level, you know, people graduating from high school are more interested in hybrid or online programs than they've been before. And that you can call that a benefit or not of the pandemic results. Right. <laughs> right. But, 
<laughs> but uh, schools who made an investment in online education during the pandemic, uh, we need more research on this, but if the initial research is accurate, uh, they're going to reap the rewards of today's younger students being more interested in that than they were before. And so this is a time to, to, you know, to really work on that. So audience is important. I think the first decision the school has to make is the primary purpose of the website is to recruit students and the homepage has to be focused on that. We've never done a top task survey where, for instance, and remember, this is people coming to the site for the first time, but this is new students uh, where news stories didn't rank as close to the bottom of the task list as you could possibly get. The, and, and, and let me let me say this for people, a typical top task survey would have been about 80 potential tasks by the time the, the prep work is done. And so it would always include alumni notes, you know, alumni content, it would include news stories because, you know, no school doesn't want to test for that. Uh, news stories always, always, always near the bottom of that list. It's a tiny task, a very tiny task for most potential students. So what I tell schools, you know, you don't want to rage a holy war within your institution about getting them off the page necessarily. They don't need to be there for student recruitment, but at least put them at the bottom of the page. Don't make it the first or second thing. It's usually not the first, but it's frequently the second or the third thing on a home page. Um, Put them down the bottom. If you got to have them there, put them down the bottom someplace uh, where they're out of the way of the potential students because unless there's been a dramatic change in the last three years, it's just not high on the list of what new students want to see. I mean, we already talked about what they want to see and that just doesn't uh, that just doesn't come up. The other one that isn't as high for most schools as a lot of people think it is, is sports. Sports is kind of a mid-level thing unless you're interested in playing a particular sport. That's a little different. But if you're not planning to go to school to play a particular sport, sports is never ranked uh, particularly high. And I guess the mantra, I just repeat what I said earlier, for the people who do start on a homepage, not everybody does by any means, the purpose of using the homepage is to get off it as quickly as possible to something else they want to see. Uh, thank God we're past the stage of carousels where people thought somebody might stay on the homepage and patiently wait to, or flip themselves through eight different carousels at the top of the page. And then God bless the people at Notre Dame many years ago now did research on that and discovered that 85%, something like 85% of the people who came to their homepage never saw anything except the first piece of the carousel that was at the top because they got off. They went someplace else. In addition to the work that you do with websites and optimizing the function of them, you also do a lot of work with optimizing enrollment yield strategy and would like to talk to you about that. And you had mentioned before that you do secret shopping exercises and you have a weekly newsletter that reports on what you find. Could we start the conversation out there? Well, sure. Uh, you know, I think one of the there are schools that spend a certain amount of time, uh, you know, desperately seeking new potential student audiences at various places around the country, usually distant from their own home lo or often, I don't want to say usually, but often distant from their home location as a way of solving an enrollment problem. 
I think that's okay if you very carefully do it after you've first really said, I've maximized everything I think I can do to convert the people who are coming to me now, sometimes through buying search names, sometimes through, you know, just a reference from, again, you know, Uncle Charlie or Aunt Mary. Most people, the majority of students going to college, we all know they're going to go fairly close to home. They're not going to travel very far. It's the really high-end academic and economic students that tend to travel more than others. Your average typical student is going to stay fairly close to home. You can look at the geographic spread of students in Michigan, for instance, of every regional university, and guess what? Most of them, most of them come from within a geographic distance of that particular regional university, uh, although we have a problem with those in the state right now. And so look at the conversion. So that's where I would come back to how are you first responding to people in text and email and what are you talking to them about? You've really got to know as much as possible about them. If all you've got is the inquiry form, pay attention to it and use the academic program. If you've bought their name, if it's a self-reported ACT or college board score, the student went to take the test and they sent you the score, you should be reading the information you get from that very carefully because if you're serious about starting a personal relationship, there's incredible information that direct marketers would die for in there about what the students tell you about their college aspirations, what kind of help they need, what they expect to get. I will confess to not having checked the ACT form in four years now, but up until that point, they were actually doing something that the college board was not on the SAT. They were asking the students their degree of interest in a particular major. And one of the things I learned, at least all during the 1990s, was that students who said they were seriously interested in mechanical engineering, you know, for instance, converted at a far higher rate than people who were just casually interested. They had three levels of interest to pick from. And if they picked the top one and they had a good academic profile and you could beg a mechanical engineering professor to call them on the phone, which was difficult to do, but if you presented them with the right profile of the right student, they would actually do it. But what we had to make sure there, of course, was that they were, when the, when the student picked up the phone and somebody said, I'm Professor so-and-so, they would react to it because they were coming from the same major and because they were seriously interested in the major. So the, the bottom line, I think, here is pay most serious attention to self-reported inquiries that are coming and are you doing everything you can to uh, maximize the conversion of those students. Those students are yours to lose. And they're self-reporting their information to a handful of schools. You might be number one, you might be number three. If you're number three, you might become number one if you follow up with those people in a way that number one isn't doing. I love the fact too that you're really focusing on, again, using the data that that we already have so that you know that self-reported data through the college board information this and, and ACT it's the self-reported data that they put on the inquiry form and even to the point we, we did this with a, a recent school last year was one of the incentives that we gave students to engage them deeper even in the in the inquiry funnel was 
letting them take a quiz and it was a fun quiz and it was kind of a silly quiz. You know, what's your favorite food to eat when you study or, you know, what kind of music do you like to listen to when you study? But what we did is we took that then and then pushed back very personalized messages to not only the students, but to mom and dad. And so it was like, hey, we were really excited to learn that Bob loves eating nachos, listening to country music when he studies. Who would have thought? Let us tell you about the you know engineering program at XYZ University. Being able to do that is going to generate conversations with the parents and the students. It's going to be able to generate interest because all of a sudden we, we heard them. That's one of the things we know about Gen Z is they want to be heard. They want to be listened to. And so um, I love the idea, Bob, that you're saying is really, especially when you're looking at yield strategies, you know, where in the funnel can we start inserting these types of messaging that's going to not only impact the students, but also parents? With more schools going test optional, maybe they'll start to see a reduction in this self-reported category of people. But uh, I suspect most schools are still getting a lot of those. Uh, You know, one of the more surprising things I heard was an ACT person in the uh, uh, oh mid, let's say 2005, and he walked into the ACT Enrollment Planners Conference when it was still in Chicago before ACT went, never mind what they went to, but uh, good conference back then. I have been recently, and what he said was, what you people are doing, you're, he said two things. One, you're overbuying our names. You're not targeting them specifically enough, and that's absolutely correct, and many schools still do that. But the other thing he said was, we found out that at least half of the colleges and universities that get self-reported ACT scores put those into their general inquiry pool and don't give them any special attention whatsoever. They become just like the person who signed up at a high school fair or, or, you know, or something like that when he said, these should be your highest converting prospects of anybody you've probably never heard of them. And for some reason, they sent you their test score and and all this other information we talked about earlier. And uh, Steve, who was giving the presentation then when he was still at ACT, and he said, we're astounded by this. And he said, you folks are doing this all wrong. The value here is make these your priority group of inquiries that you want to follow with. And that information was good, you know, 15, 16 years ago. I hope there's nobody out there still doing that. But if there is, you need to move move past that immediately. And that's what I mean by making sure you're maximizing everything you can do in the early conversion stage before you start trying to mine for new gold in areas far removed from your campus, because that's just a very, very difficult thing to do. Thank you very much for everything that you've shared today. Bob, would like to ask you if you could offer one additional thought or idea that someone hearing it could be implemented right away, what would that thought or idea, that piece of advice be? I would actually go back to what I just mentioned. If you're not already doing something special with those self-reported test scores that many people are still sending you even in this test optional era, that's something that you could change immediately and it would begin to reap new rewards. I know that because we used to, we, I mean, I used to, when I was working at a university, we tracked that stuff like crazy. 
And the single highest group of enrolling people that we got was self-reported people. And it was hands down. It was far away from anything else. Way above, you know, the apps that came back. Uh, when a counselor went out to a cow, was working at a Catholic university, went out to a Catholic high school and they had free app day, you know, and the counselor sent everybody down to sign up. And those things didn't convert at hardly at all. Thank you, Bob. For those who would like to contact you, what is the best way for someone to reach you or how should they go about to do so? I would just Google uh, BobJohnsonConsulting.com and, and you'll, you'll get there. And it's very easy to sign up for my newsletter and my link of the weeks from BobJohnsonConsulting.com. I'm not actively soliciting new clients these days, although I am taking occasional work from people I've known for years and years and who have been newsletter subscribers. So that's what I still do regularly, the monthly newsletter, the weekly links of the weeks. So I love to have people join me there and build up the subscriber base. Thank you, Bob. Bart, do you have any closing thoughts that you would like to share? Yeah, I do. This has been a great conversation. I've really appreciated so much of what um, Bob has talked about. I really liked the research that he talked about at the top of the of the show with the top tasks and might go back and re-listen to some of that because I think those are some really clear things that you need to take a look at, uh, you know, have an honest look at your website and make sure that you are, you know, providing easy access and easy information to those tasks that students are looking for. And I really also appreciated, you know, his comment um, that he talked about just making sure your website is enrollment focused. And that's something if you're a regular listener here on the podcast, you've heard me talk a lot about is, you know, just the importance of, of enrollment focused websites, um, you know, content that's going to get, you know, answering the questions that, that prospective students and influencers have, and then, you know, ways to generate, you know, uh, people to get to that content into your website. So those are some really good things. And, 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 and I really also appreciated some of those lower level tasks that he talked about, which, you know, ended up being news and maybe sometimes athletics, depending on who you are, that, that we really sometimes put higher than what they need to be. And then finally, I really liked, um, you know, just this whole point of you're gathering data, whether it's self-reported through you know, it's a student sharing their test scores with you, or if it's an inquiry form that you've collected some data, use that data in your personalization, in your Comflow, in your in your emails, uh, in the way that you communicate with your students. I really thought that was a lot of wisdom in that as well. So, Bob, thanks again so much for joining us today. It's been quite a pleasure. Thank you for having me. It's been a fun time. The Higher Ed Marketer Podcast is sponsored by Kaler Solutions, an education marketing and branding agency, and by Ring Digital providing significant lifts and yield by following your list with precisely targeted ads and by Think Patented, a marketing execution company combining direct mail and unique digital stacks for higher ed outreach success. On behalf of Bart Kaler, my co-host, I'm Troy Singer. Thank you for listening. You've been listening to The Higher Ed Marketer. To ensure that you never miss an episode, subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast player. If you're listening with Apple Podcasts, we'd love for you to leave a quick rating of the show. Simply tap the number of stars you think the podcast deserves. Until next time.